tonight's scriptures from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that when he was spoken by the prophets, um, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Jesse, in all the years I've been preaching, no one has said, now Jesus will give the sermon. So, um, <laughs> kudos to you, brother. Uh, when I was in, in high school, there was a song that came out by the Doobie Brothers. I, I don't know, they're probably playing in Vegas now. But um, it was called, Jesus is Just All Right With Me. 
And uh, those of you over 50 are kind of tapping your feet. The rest are like, Doobie Brothers? I've never heard of Doobie Brothers. That sentiment was very popular then, this idea that Jesus is he's just all right, man. He's cool. He's, he's cool. And I think today there still is there's this idea that Jesus is just all right. You know, you have uh, furry-chested rock stars with big crosses just headbanging out there. and uh, Everybody likes Jesus. Even the militant atheists may hate the idea of God, but they like Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospels, though, uh, evokes quite a different response. Um, he's not just all right with everybody. Uh, you either love him or you hate him. You either fall at his feet or you try to kill him. The second chapter of Matthew's gospel uh, describes two very different responses to Jesus. The Magi respond with faith, and Herod responds in fury. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, a sleepy little village, and uh, I think we've got a uh, a little picture here of Herod's uh, part of the world at this point. And you might not be able to make it out too well, but uh, you remember Israel is essentially broken into a northern and a southern part. And the north is rural. It's, uh, it's often referred to as Galilee. It's still like this today. Uh, there was a very different dialect in the north. The south is often referred to as Judea or Judah. Uh, it's many more cities. It's, it's much more urban, although there's quite a bit of desert, too. And the whole area from the north of Galilee to the south of Judea, um, it's about 90 miles long, not that long, maybe 20 miles uh, across. It's a very arid desert region. And it's hard to see, but Jerusalem is down um, in the south, and this little village of Bethlehem, is about six miles away, up in the, a little bit of a ridge. And at that time, it would have been about a two-hour walk, maybe a three-hour walk, depending on how fast you walked. Well, David also had been anointed there. That's why Luke uh, calls it the city of David. You, you probably can't get there today. When I was in Israel, it was a shutdown. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a heavily uh, contested area. Uh, if you're lucky, sometimes you can get in, sometimes you can't. Well, at this point that our story opens, a declining Herod the Great, who rules over that area on behalf of Rome, uh, has been in power about 40 years. and uh, He is a shrewd and determined leader. He built huge public work projects. Uh, Herod had convinced Antony to name him king of the Jews, about 37 B.C. Uh, He then goes down, conquers Jerusalem. Uh, The region had been in a bloody civil war. It's it's just tragic that the same things that are going on today have been going on there almost forever. There was a power vacuum. Herod stepped in, um, and he began by consolidating power. The first thing he did is he executed 45 of the wealthiest landowners, and took all their property. Um, Another political rival was invited to the palace and accidentally drowned in the palace pool. 
Not a lot of life preservers, evidently, in Herod's uh, pool. Uh, once he consolidated power, he started building massive theaters, fortresses, amphitheaters. Uh, the remains of these are scattered all over the Holy Land. Uh, he named them after Roman patrons. He named it after his wife, uh, his son. He also loved Greek culture and religion, and he built several temples for uh, Greek gods as well. He even sponsored uh, Olympic Games. Now, one of the things that he needed was a, a capital city that would reflect his glory. So one of Herod's big projects was to take Jerusalem and totally redo it. And he put millions of dollars into it. He used the most lavish Roman structures and forms. Uh, he rebuilt the temple, or started to. He built himself a huge palace, uh, became one of the greatest temples in the ancient world. But towards the end of his life, uh, about the time when our story begins, Herod becomes increasingly ill and very paranoid. And he employed a network of spies and informers to keep him informed of public opinion. Now, one of the reasons he was so paranoid was he had 10 wives and 15 sons. And they all wanted uh, a piece of the action. And so, uh, I was reading it over again today, a palace intrigue worthy of a Shakespeare play or at least an HBO miniseries uh, erupts and all these people are jockeying for position and poisoning one another and executing each other and telling on each other. Uh, Herod ends up executing three of his uh, own sons. Uh, He then kills his wife and his mother-in-law, changes his will seven times, Uh, Josephus, the historian, said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son uh, because Herod was a nominal Jew and wouldn't eat pork while he killed all his boys. Um, Now, imagine that. So so you've got this uh, incredible, unstable time, and what happens next is uh, a revolt breaks out in Palestine, and the Jews rise up. And, and two young men are sent by some Pharisees up on a big pole, and Herod had put the Roman eagle on the temple. And the two young men tear down the Roman eagle, which is an ultimate sign of defiance, and uh, Herod burns them alive. So it's against this backdrop that these guys, we don't know if there are three magi, the text doesn't say three magi, right? It just says magi. Magi were religious leaders uh, who who looked at the stars for guidance, which was a very common thing in the ancient world, probably from Babylon. And so these three guys, uh, we don't, there I go again, we don't know how many guys, but the Magi show up in the middle of all this palace intrigue and, and say, hey, by the way, just looking for the king of the Jews. Have you seen him? Now remember, Herod had spent the past 40 years fighting for the right to be the king of the Jews. And so obviously... He is very, very upset. Now, a lot of times when you read this story, it can sound a little bit like a fairy tale. And some people have said, well, that probably couldn't have happened. That's that's just a story. Well, actually, there are historical reasons why it probably did happen this way. Um, One of them is that there was a widespread belief in the ancient world that the stars foretold political events in the birth of great leaders. 
And there was also a commonly held belief that a great ruler would be born in Judea. Listen to the the Roman historian Suetonius. And he's writing, I think, in the second century in a book called The Life of Vespasian. He says, There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated for men coming from Judea to rule the world. So this is the, the, the context This isn't just coming out of nowhere. There is this belief all over the ancient world that a great ruler would come from Judea. And there is also a belief, and I don't think the Bible is endorsing this belief, but there was a belief that that you could look at the stars somehow through astrology. These were kind of the early scientists. And that you could determine where the ruler would come from. And that's what is happening here. And the Magi have seen something in the stars that have gotten to this point. We don't know what it was. But what we do know is that when they sense in their observation of the heavens that there is a God or that there is a great ruler, they move towards him. And what they're doing is responding to what the theologians call general revelation. God makes himself known to us in two ways. General revelation is through nature. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Romans 1.20, God's nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are responding to God as he reveals himself through the skies. The Bible says that everyone is without excuse, that everyone knows there's a God, because God has revealed himself through the earth, through the heavens. Now, general revelation is not enough to bring the Magi to Christ. And that's part of how the Bible understands this too, is that the the stars, the sunset, Uh, The the ocean is enough to to let someone know that there is a God and maybe that that somehow you need mercy from God. But the stars can't tell you how to be made right with God. For that, Scripture is required. And theologians call Scripture God's special revelation. And the Magi eventually discover Christ through Scripture because Herod deceitfully shares with them a prophecy from the book of Micah that says that the future king will be from Bethlehem. So let's look at their journey. It starts with natural revelation. They respond to an awareness of God in the the heavens. And then they are given a scripture that guides them to Christ. But notice they're not yet followers. They're not yet worshipers. When the Magi find Christ, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then obeying their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's when they encounter the Christ. When they, with great joy, bow down, kneel before him, surrender their authority and all their treasure to the Christ child. So you see this three-stage process 
that the Magi respond to Christ with, it's a, I would say it's the way, in one way or another, we all come to Christ. It begins with an awareness of God. You see a movie, you read a book, you, you, you see a sunset and you think, you know, I think there must be a God. And then you begin to read the scriptures and the scriptures reveal Jesus Christ to you. And then you bow your knee and give him all your treasure. Now, where, where are you tonight in that process? You may be here tonight, and, and, and I don't know how, but, but you've just, it's just kind of occurred to you, I think that there is a God. I, I believe that there is someone or something out there, and I'd like to know him better. I don't know what or who that is. Well, the next step for you is to begin reading the scriptures about Jesus Christ. And I'd encourage you to walk along with us this summer as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, you may be here tonight, and you may be thinking, well, I believe that. Yeah, I, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in Easter. I, I believe all of that. Yeah, I believe that. You know, James says that the demons believe all that too. Do you know that you can believe all that and not be a Christian? See, there's another step. And the step is going beyond, yeah, I believe, I believe all that. I get that. I believe that. Yep, that happened. I believe that. Yep, Jesus, Son of God, get that. The, the last step is worship. The last step is surrender. The last step is giving all your treasure. You see, saving faith is more than a mental assent to the facts of the gospel. Saving faith is a willful surrender to the person of the gospel. Have you made that last step? Somebody illustrated it like this once. A guy was at Niagara Falls, and he stretches this wire across the falls. He gets out this wheelbarrow, gets on the wire, walks across the falls, walks all the way back, gets out and says, ta-da! And everybody's crowd gathers. They're amazed. He says, do you all believe that I could walk this wheelbarrow across that wire and back? And they say, well, yeah, I guess, sure. I, I believe that. And then he says, get in. See, faith is getting in. Have you gotten in? Well, warned in a dream not to return to Herod the Magi, go home another way. I've wondered if that's not a metaphor in a sense, because if you really encounter Jesus Christ, you'll go home another way. You, you won't leave the same way that you came in. Well, Herod's response is very different. Uh, as we've said, he's about 70 now. He's ill. He's paranoid. He's deteriorating, deteriorating every way. And, and when these guys show up, 
and, and ask about the real king of the Jews, he comes unglued. And what's so interesting about this is that the Prince of Peace brings anxiety to Herod's heart. Uh, the text says uh, trouble, that it troubled him. It means um, upset. Uh, it, means, it means emotionally frustrated. It means angry. It means un, uh, made uncomfort or, or diseased. The Prince of Peace disrupts Herod's peace. Now, why could that be? Herod was troubled because Herod liked his throne. He liked being king. He liked the illusion of control, the illusion of power, calling his own shots, being the center of his own universe, and the very prospect of a rival king terrified him. I became a Christian about 40 years ago, and and in my own fumbling ways, I've tried to share the gospel over those 40 years. And uh, one of the things that's always puzzled me, still puzzles me, is how rarely when I try to tell someone about the good news of Jesus Christ, when I try to introduce them to the Prince of Peace, how rarely does someone go, whoa, that's good news, I want that. More often than not, they get angry, or at least troubled, disturbed, upset. Now, why, why would that be? Uh, there could be a number of reasons, of course. They might have had a bad experience with a Christian. Uh, they might have legitimate intellectual questions. Uh, They may truly be concerned about the negative impact of religion on the world, but I have to wonder if beneath all this reasonableness, there isn't a Herod problem. I wonder if the fallen human heart, committed as it is to its own sovereignty, is not always troubled by Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, Doug, you you don't understand. Certainly, you you see all the brutality that has been done in the name of Christ over the centuries. That's why Christopher Hitchens writes a book called God is Not Great. That's why the new atheists are so angry with Christianity. Look at all the religious wars. Okay, fair. But it seems to me that some secular leaders did quite a bit of damage in the past century. Um, Do the names Stalin or... Pol Pot mean anything? I don't see people all that upset about secularism. Christ makes people angry because he threatens our own rule. So Herod calls all the religious leaders of Jerusalem together, feigning sincerity. He says, hey, you know, these guys have come along. You don't happen to know anything about this uh, ruler of Judea, king of the Jews thing. I really want to go worship him. Check out your scriptures. Well, they know immediately what, he, what it's about because they knew the prophecy from Micah 5, and, and they read it to him. Now, now, one of the things that is so interesting about this is that Herod is pretending to be sort of a Jew. 
he is kind of a, a, a nominal Jewish man. His father had converted to Judaism. His mother was an Arab. He never fully embraced Judaism. He followed some Jewish laws, broke others. He re- rebuilt the temple, but put a Roman symbol on it. Um, at the same time he was rebuilding the temple, he built pantheons to the Greek gods. And so here's what he was trying to do. He was trying to have it all. He was trying to mix together Christianity and the values of the Roman Empire and weave them all into this hybrid mix that kind of kept everything together and kept the people down and safe. And I think Americans often do the same thing. In 1967, there was a a famous essay published by a sociologist named Robert Bella. At least it was famous among the four people that read things like this. And it's it's an essay called Civil Religion in America. And, And he argues, he says, Christianity is not the primary religion in America. He says... He says what's happened is we've created this civil religion, he calls it a set of beliefs, symbols, and rituals that exist alongside of and rather clearly clearly differentiated from the churches. And what he does is he goes back and he looks at every inaugural speech from every president since George Washington, and he points out that there's always God there, but it's not the God of the scriptures. It's a different God. It's a vague God. The God who's the source of our freedoms, but not a God that particularly has anything to do with your life. And Bella will say that in America, what we've done is we've mixed Christian symbols up with American symbols and thrown them all together and called that the American way. Now, I happen to be a fan of all those, uh, a lot of those American symbols. But Bella's insight is, for a lot of Americans, that's their Christianity. And I think when the pollsters go out and Barna goes out and he says, 30% of all Americans are Christians, what they really are saying is, I believe in the American way. I believe in the God who's behind our freedoms and the Constitution and Fourth of July, and I believe in all of it. I don't think they have any idea what Christianity really is. And so Herod has this mix that that serves him very, very well. And what happens is that when Christ shows up, the real Christ, and begins to make claims, and his followers begin to make claims, and he begins to to, to even hear of this idea that there's another king, it, it... It rips apart this illusion that he's okay with God. And friends, I think that is what happens when the gospel becomes real and the spirit begins to move and Christ begins to be glorified and magnified, I think what starts to happen is, is, is this vague sense of civil religion, this vague sense of Southern Christianity somehow is exposed as a kind of topping that obscures the real thing. I'd be surprised if 5% of Americans are truly following the radical Christ. So 
God ever guiding and protecting this holy family then sends Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to Egypt. They wait out the storm of of terror. Herod never bothers to take the two-hour walk to go down and check out what's going on in Bethlehem. Instead, he sends his jackboots into the city. They wipe out every kid under two years old, anybody that could possibly be the Christ. And the next thing we read of his career in the gospel is when Herod died. There, there is something in the human heart that in our fallenness recoils against the lordship of Jesus Christ. There is something that resists surrendering to Jesus Christ. There is something that makes us angry. And there is a sense in which we are all Herod. F.D. Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, he writes, In Herod we see even more clearly what theology calls original sin, depth sin, deep sin. The human person is infected with diseased self-centeredness. And Herod serves as simply a more graphic representation of what we all are. The human person fights passionately for self-sovereignty and will go to almost any length to retain one's own crown, one's own power. Herod is what I am deep down inside. Herod lives and he lives in us, tempting us ever and anew to doubt, hate, and resist the real king. William Barclay put it like this. He says, the person whose one desire is to live for himself never has any use for Jesus Christ. So are you a civil Christian? Have you kind of concocted this kind of faith that's just sort of part of your culture that is kind of like a talisman that keeps the bad luck away, sort of like a bobblehead Jesus on the dashboard to make sure you don't crash? Is that it? Or have you been disrupted by the real king? Have you had your treasure taken out of joyful worship or are you simply kind of inviting this ghost to bless the presence of your life? I think one of the keys is fear. And see, I I think another way to read Matthew 2 is, is... you've kind of got a picture of what the the new man and the old man look like in the Christian life. The Magi represent a heart bent towards Christ. Herod represents the flesh, our fallenness, and they are at war with each other. And we go back and forth. When you see fear in your heart, even right now, when you see fear and anger, when the claims of Christ are being pressed into your heart, when you experience agitation, trouble, fear, anger, when Christ's claims are being pressed into your heart, that's not the Spirit. That's Herod.
Now let's end with this. What does it look like then to live a different way? We never hear anything more about the Magi. What does it look like if I, if, if I die to the, the Herod in me and I enthrone Christ in my life when I, when I allow him to fire me from my company and give it back to him and I go work for him? What on earth does that look like? It looks like Joseph. It looks like Joseph. The model disciple. Two weeks ago, we, we looked at this, this gentle carpenter. He's, got his, he's in a time of prosperity. He's got his whole life planned out in front of him. And the Lord says, you're going to marry that virgin and sends him into a life of exile. And then the next thing that happens is God says in a dream, I want you to be a refugee in Egypt, leave in the middle of the night. And then the next thing that happens is God says in a dream, I want you to go back to the land of Israel. And then the next thing happens when he gets there and gets back to Bethlehem, he realizes that Herod's son is worse than his father. And God says, no, 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 I want you to go all the way north to Nazareth, where you don't know anybody and you don't understand the dialect and you're starting all over again. And of course, Joseph doesn't have the gospel of Matthew. He's got a a kid and a wife and maybe a donkey. He's like the Syrian refugees on TV. That was his reality. He was a wandering nomad. And we don't know if he ever knew really what was going on. And, and I, I share that with you, and I want to end at that point with you. And I want to say that especially to you who are graduating and starting on a journey, and you have in your mind what it's going to look like. And I want to say especially that to those of us who have been doing it for a while, and think we know what it's going to look like. It's going to look like Joseph. It's going to look like a wild goose chase. It's going to look like you think you know what it's going to look like, and he tells you to do something you never thought of doing. And so what I want to ask you here as we end is, Can you hold on to your expectations and dreams and needs and demands loosely enough for the angel to wake you and send you to Egypt? I'm not saying you go look for it. I'm not saying you try to make up a goofy life. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with plowing the same row for 40 years. But I am saying if you make an idol out of what you think life should look like, God will crush it. 